Amen. All right, so we are starting a new series. We went through Jonah, the prophet who would not speak. And we went and we did Ezra, the the priest who opened the book. And now we're going to do a six-part series. And the sixth message is going to to culminate in the Easter service. But it's a series called David, the King No One Saw Coming. The King No One Saw Coming. And the heart of this series is we're going to look at the life of David. We're going to look at his life, in particular, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. In 1 Samuel 16, you see David being anointed as king. And you go into chapter 17, you see Goliath comes on the scene and he's trying to intimidate the armies of the nation of Israel. And so David comes on the scene when the enemy's trying to intimidate and he comes and God uses him to defeat Goliath. And so this is what we're going to look at, 1 Samuel 16 and 17. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of who it is that God uses for his purposes in the earth. How, who does God use? How does he work? And, and when that person, you and I, when we want to be used by God, what happens when we, we step out in faith and, and we open our mouth and we become bold for our faith? What happens? Sometimes the enemy attacks and the enemy tries to intimidate And so we're going to look at the intimidation of the enemy in our life and how he wants to silence us and to shove us into a corner in our life. And so we're going to kind of go through this series and it's going to culminate in Easter. I really love how this is going to unfold here in 1 Samuel 16 and 17. So before we read the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16, I have to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you got to meet one of your heroes or you got to see a hero in your life, whether it's a sports figure. You ever, have you ever, is there a, fa- is there a famous sports figure that, that you like, whether in, in whatever sport, and you, and you get to see them up close other than on TV? Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, it's like you kind of stand in awe for a moment. You're like, I didn't know that they were actually real. I only knew them from TV or from my phone screen. And you're just kind of in awe a little bit about the greatness of that person. You know, it would feel that way if I would meet maybe my, a favorite golfer of mine that I really enjoy. It's, it, it was like that whenever I went to the, to the Masters golf tournament. You know, I'll always talk about the Masters and golf because I really do like golf a lot. But it was like that when I first went to the Masters. I walked onto the course and I was like, is this real? Is the grass real? Everything looks so perfect. It looks perfect on TV. It even looks more perfect in person. And it was just this awe and this wonder. And then you see the players live as they're playing. And, and there's just this sense of awe that comes over you when you're around people that we consider great. And you've all experienced that, right? I remember one time uh, I went to a, a, a men's conference in Nashville. And President George W. Bush was one of the speakers. And there was probably six to 8,000 men that were there. Primarily because President George Bush was going to be there. And I was seated way in the top. I wasn't up close, but I was in awe that I got to hear live in person a president of the United States, George W. Bush. I, and, and he didn't speak like he preached, but it was a Q&A. And just to hear him talk, I felt honored amongst several thousand men that I was there to hear the president of the United States, even though he hadn't been in office for, for several years. And that's, that's something that's very common for us, right? That's how we respond. And so what we're going to look at here in 1 Samuel 16, we're going to look at an account where we see the typical human response to somebody that we think is great, to somebody that we think has power. 
It's the typical human response that we all have. We all get into that category where we look at certain people from the outside because of their accomplishments, because of their stature, because of their power. We look at them and we're just like, wow, look at that guy. Look at that woman. Look at their accomplishments and we stand in awe. And so this is what we're going to look at. And this is how we're going to approach this. We're going to look at who is the type of person that God uses. Who is the type of person? Who is the type of person that becomes God's servant that is used for God's kingdom? And so we're going to read 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. And I have, I have liked, I don't know if you like it, but I have liked the last two Sundays, us standing up in honor of God's word. So let's do that again this morning. If you're able to stand, we're going to read from 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came in, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah passed by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and the beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. Lord, I thank you for, the, for your word. I thank you that your word is going to speak to us here today. God, I pray that you would help me to, to open my mouth. To preach your word and to exalt Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So as we think about the servant God uses, as you think about the kind of person that God uses, we must think about how God evaluates usefulness. We must think about how God evaluates the person that he desires to use. What is his evaluation standard? And if you listen as I was reading through the text, as I emphasized certain words and as I read it, as I read through, you could, you could tell where we're going with this message. And let's evaluate, let's look at how man evaluates people. 
and how God evaluates people. What do we see in this account of David that will help us understand God's perspective of usefulness? Well, the first one is obvious, right? What did the text say? When they came in, he looked on Eliab and thought. The prophet Samuel went to Jesse's house. He went to his sons. He walks in. He's about, he knows that there's going to be one of the, the sons is going to be the king. And the first one he sees is the oldest and it's Eliab. And it would have been, it would have been Jewish custom that the oldest would have been chosen in the family to be the greatest, to have the fatherly blessing. And so, so Jesse would have thought, Jesse the father would have thought, surely my eldest is the one. And so when Eliab comes before Samuel, Samuel says the same thing. He looks at him and says, surely The Lord's anointed is before me. And then the text says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. So there was something about Eliab, right? It was his appearance, the way he looked. He looked looked like a king. So in Samuel's perspective, he looked like a king. He was, I would imagine, when you think of somebody kingly, they're maybe a little bit bigger than than I am, right? Maybe their suit comes and stretches out a little bit more than mine does on their arms, right? And they're tall. He was tall. He was big. He had the look of a king. But what did the Lord say to Samuel? Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. And then what did the text also say? Man does what? Looks on the outward appearance. So what's the first thing we see? First thing we see is this, is that man's evaluation goes only skin deep. Man's evaluation of somebody goes only skin deep because the truth is that's all we have, right? I can't see your heart. I can't see your motives. I can't see your desires because I can't see on the inside of you. What, what do I see when I look at you? I see your hair, your eyes, your nose, your ears, your legs, your arms. I see your body. I see your outside. I see your skin. And so man's evaluation only goes skin deep because that is all we're limited to. We can only see how somebody lives and how somebody acts. That's, that's the limited vision that we have as human beings. But God's not like us. But man's evaluation goes only skin deep. It goes only skin deep. God had rejected Saul. Do you remember how God had rejected Saul? And why did God reject Saul? Because he had disobeyed. But ultimately it was more than his disobedience. His disobedience was simply a reflection of his, of his heart. God had rejected Saul because of his heart. But that's not how we evaluate people nowadays, is it? We don't, because we can't see their hearts, so we evaluate what we can see, just like I introduced a sermon here this morning. We evaluate by people's greatness, by their accomplishments, by their looks. And here's a few things I wrote down about kind of worldly definitions of how we evaluate people and, and, and if they'll be great or not, or their usefulness in God's kingdom. This is what we do. We have worldly standards of beauty. Worldly standards of beauty. Who gets to define what what beautiful is or handsome is? God does, right? But but we have this whole system of understanding that is is, uh, filtered through a worldly view uh, uh, and their definition of what a beautiful person or a handsome person or a strong person looks like. And it's all based upon how somebody looks on the outside. That's what we're up against when we evaluate people. Or we look at their power or their strength. Isn't it amazing when you see somebody that's very powerful and strong and they, they have accomplishment that they, that, they, that they do because of their strength and their power? It, 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 it moves us, doesn't it? Have you ever seen the world's strongest man competition? 
Sometimes they play those on ESPN or some other channels, and you're just in awe at what a person, what a, a man can do, and their muscles are coming out their skin, and they lift up logs, and they lift up cars, and they flip cars, and they do all these feats of strength, and we look at them and we think they are so powerful and they're so strong. Yes, but that's not how God evaluates power and strength, real power and strength. Or we look at money and possessions, don't we? When I was in Los Angeles driving around or riding around, uh, I would look at certain houses and I'd heard that the housing market is really high in Los Angeles. And so we're driving down a street that looked like Broadmoor. Houses about as old as Broadmoor, maybe Summerfield, driving around. And I said, Matt, what do you think that house is worth? And so I looked at the address, Googled the address, 950,000, 1.2 million. And all these numbers, and I'm like, what in the world? How can anybody afford to live in Los Angeles? But we evaluate people based upon money and possessions. And we think that they're great because they have a lot of money. Because they have a lot of paper. Actually, they don't even have the paper. It's just some digital form they're hoping that their bank will honor. Isn't that how we all live? How many of you use cash and are under the age of 40? <laughs> I, I, my kids ask me for money and I tell them I don't have any. <laughs> That's one reason to, use, to not use cash as a parent. Because when they ask for money, I ain't got nothing. Sorry for you. But that's another way in which we judge people's powerfulness and usefulness and importance in this life is how much money they have. How big is their house? How nice is their car? Here's another thing. It's another way in which we look at people. We look at their influence and their control. How much influence do they have? Who do they know? Who do they know? Don't you like the idea of hanging around somebody who knows somebody great? Because if you get close to that person who knows somebody great, it makes you feel great. I know the person who knows LeBron James. Can you imagine? What if I went to Los Angeles and my friend that I knew in Los Angeles knew LeBron James? Be like, wow, I know a guy who's friends with LeBron James. Makes me feel special, like I'm somebody special because he knows him. It's all backwards. Man's evaluation can only go skin deep. We are attracted to this type of evaluation. We want to be around people like this. We can't help it in our sinfulness, in our fallenness. That's what we're attracted to. What did, what did the Lord tell the prophet Samuel who fell into the same trap? Surely. He said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. What did he tell him? He said, Samuel, I don't judge the way you judge. I don't look the way you look. I have eyes that see differently than you do. I have x-ray vision. I can see beyond his height. I can see beyond his build. I can see beyond his appearance of kingliness. I see deeper. My evaluation does not go skin deep. You know, the leaders of the nation of Israel during this time and before and then after, when you go into the Gospels, the leaders of the nation of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were leaders. They had power over the nation. And they were all about the outward appearance. They were all about how they looked and, 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 and how people would approach them and relate to them. And listen to what Jesus says to a skin-deep evaluation of people's authority. Listen to this, Matthew 25, 5 through 7. Speaking of the religious leaders of the Jews, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. And a phylactery was a leather box. 
tunics that would be worn, a Pharisee would wear it around his head like a, like a, a bandana. And in the box were scriptures, were, were sections of the Torah that they would keep in this box. And they were obeying the law of God that, that said that, you, that, that, that we need to keep the word of God ever before us. So they were, they would, they'd make their phylacteries broad. They weren't small phylacteries. They wanted everyone to see that they were obeying the law and keeping scripture in front of their eyes. They did that to be seen. They make their fringes long, and at the bottom of their robes, there was, there was at the end of the fringes, there was symbolism built into the fringes connected with their position of authority as Pharisees, and so they wanted broad phylacteries, and they wanted long fringes so that they can be seen as somebody that was spiritual and a spiritual person. And they loved the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. They want to be honored. They want to have seats in the synagogue. They want to sit up front. They want to be, they want to be escorted to the front at this conference that I went to. 3,500 pastors there. There was the reserve section where all the famous preachers got to sit. I mean, that, that's what happens, right? They love the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. As human beings, we long for significance. We long to be known. And in our sinfulness, we make this an idol in our life. In our sinfulness, we make this an idol in our life. We want to be like our heroes. We want to have the money that they have, the possessions that they have, because we have bought in, we buy into on a regular basis the man-centered evaluation of greatness. We all fall into that trap, you and me. It's because we want significance. We want to be known. We want to be known. And people can spend their entire life chasing position and power and significance from a worldly perspective. But these are only skin-deep evaluations. For God sees not as man sees. So what was God actually saying to Samuel when he made that statement to Samuel? When Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And Samuel's looking at the outward appearance. What was God really saying in essence? He was saying to Samuel... You're not seeing correctly. You're evaluating a person the way I do. You're not evaluating the person the way I do. Your vision is clouded by a worldly perspective. You remember back when Saul was anointed king? What did the text say there when Saul was anointed king in 1 Samuel? It says that he was head and shoulders above any other man in Israel. Notice when Samuel, who anointed Saul to be king, he goes to anoint David to be king, and he didn't learn the lesson. It said, that the text we just read, he saw, and God said, don't look at his stature like you looked at Saul. I don't judge that way. I judge the heart. And this is where, this is where we find ourselves at. This is the struggle we have when we think about who can be used by God, who can be useful, who does God want to use in his kingdom? We get stuck with a worldly view of skin-deep evaluation. And where can this ultimately lead us? Here's where it can ultimately lead us, and this is where it gets dangerous. Look at James chapter 2. This is James chapter 2. Listen to this warning. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then 
make distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Wow. That's what happens. That's the danger of a skin-deep, man-centered form of evaluating who we are and our significance and our greatness and our usefulness before God is that we begin to develop distinctions between people and we say the person that looks great, that dresses nice, that has the gold ring, that keeps himself up, they're the ones that are great. And they're the ones that should have the seats of honor, but the one that comes in that looks shabby, maybe doesn't have the most money to buy the nicest clothes, you sit over there, you go back there. You, we can't have conversation with you. You sit at my feet in a subservient position. If we are dominated by human perspective concerning people, we will inevitably gravitate towards favoritism, towards a worldly perspective of human greatness. This is the first clear thing we see here in this text, that God is evaluating people and these sons completely different than even the prophet Samuel was doing. And we all fall into the same trap, man-centered evaluation, and it only goes skin deep. So what's the next one that we see? So we see that man's evaluation goes only skin deep. So, So what does the text say next? We just read it. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance like Samuel was doing, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what's the truth we see there? That the Lord, number two, the Lord's evaluation goes beyond the surface. The Lord's evaluation goes beyond the surface. What is the Lord evaluating? What is he evaluating? What is he looking at when he's evaluating those who will be used by him? What does it say there? What is he looking at? The heart. What matters more to him? How the person looks? If they got long hair, short hair? If they have tattoos or no tattoos? If they wear skinny jeans or baggy pants? What is God evaluating when he looks at somebody? If they're tall, they're fat, they're skinny? No. He's looking at the, at the heart. He's looking at the heart. When the Lord says here in First Samuel that the Lord looks in the heart, what he's also, what he's not saying is that He's looking in their heart to evaluate them for coronary problems. He's not looking at them and saying, well, you got, we need a couple of stents here. About to have a heart attack. That's not, that's not what it means that he looks in the heart. What does it mean that he looks in the heart? What does the heart represent for us as believers, as, as, as human beings? What does the heart represent for us? It represents who we really are. It represents the real you. The word heart in scripture is used to describe the real person. Who you are on the inside is the real you. Your real motives, your real thoughts, your real desires. And looking at your skin will not tell me what your real desires are. Looking, looking at, at, at how you look and even how you act from time to time won't tell me exactly what your real desires are. So when the Lord says to Samuel that I look on the heart... That's what he's talking about, the real person, who a person really is, the center. Listen to this. The heart goes to describe the center of our affections and our desires, the center of our motivations. So when we talk about what motivates us, we're talking about our heart. What is it that motivates you here today? What are your heart's desires? That's what the Lord looks at. What are our motivations? What are our loves? The center of our affections. It's our heart. It's who we really are. Or you can put it like this. The center of our worship. The center of our worship. 
That's what God is after. Isn't that what it all comes down to? Who or what are you going to worship? The Lord evaluates different than man. He's looking at who are you worshiping? What does the Bible say in Proverbs 4? I like the translation in the NIV here. It says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Wow. How powerful of a scripture is that? Above all else, protect your heart. Why? Protect your affections, protect your desires, protect your heart, protect what comes on the inside of you. And how do, how do things get on the inside of you? It's not, it's not done by osmosis, right? How do they get on the inside of you? Through your eyes and through your ears, your eye gate and your ear gate. That's how things make their way, ideas, beliefs, affections, desires. That's how they make their way into the real you. It's through what you watch. It's through what you listen to, through who you hang out with, through who you spend the most of your time with. That's what impacts your heart. So in Proverbs 4, it says, above all else, guard your heart. Well, how do you guard your heart? You guard your heart by guarding what you watch. By guarding what you listen to, by guarding who you hang out with. Because what you listen to, what you watch, who you hang out with, through the belief systems you hang around, will eventually affect what? Your heart, which is your affections, which is your desires. And that flows into the next verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 19. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects what? Your desires, your heart. So this is the flow right here. God looks at the heart. Because the heart is going to impact the way that you live. As water reflects the face. Have you ever been to a, a place of water that wasn't like bayou water, but was clear water? And you're able to look at it and you can see reflection in the water. Have you ever done that? Well, that's what the heart does. That's what your life does. It's just like what, what our, our life does. Our life is like a reflection of our heart. Our life will reflect the condition of our heart. Our life will reflect the desires of our heart. Just as you can see your reflection in still, calm water, so it is with our life. It reflects our heart. Our life reflects who we really are on the inside. That's what eventually happens. We can fake it for a little while. We can lie to people by our actions for a little while, but eventually your heart will come to the surface in your life. Have you experienced that before? We've all experienced it. I want to read this section here about, about Saul because I think it's so important as we're talking about David and him being eventually being anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. I believe that the reason Saul was rejected, as we said earlier in the first point, it was because his heart was not right. And I want to read this section about how God confronted Saul and his disobedience through the prophet Samuel. Listen to 1 Samuel 15. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul did not obey. God had told him, go kill the Amalekites. They're enemies of the nation of Israel. They're a danger to the nation of Israel. And kill everyone, including the king. And don't take anything. Destroy it all. God said, he's not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. See a little pride there happening in Saul? 
And Samuel came to Saul and said, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed all that the Lord had commanded me. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Because God had told him, Kill everyone, even the animals. Saul said, Well, well, well they have brought them from the Amalekites. The people, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. What was Saul saying there? It was the people. They coerced me. They did it. It's not my fault. They did it. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. I can hear in Samuel's words right there when he, this exclamation, this word stop. He's like, stop, Saul. Stop with your excuses. Stop with your, with your reasoning why you did not obey God. You have a heart issue. And this is why God has rejected you as being king. Because your heart led you to set up a monument to yourself. Your heart led you to save the king of Amalek as a trophy for yourself. Your heart led you to allow the people and yourself to save the best of all the goods and to disobey the Lord. It was your heart, Saul. And that's how the Lord evaluates usefulness. It is centered on our heart. I read this commentary by Warren Wearsby, a famous theologian and pastor. He says this, a person may be rejected by God and still be accepted by men. A person may be rejected by God like Saul, but still be accepted by men. Why? Because man's evaluation only goes skin. So a person can be completely rejected by God, but be accepted by men. How dangerous of a thought is that? Worldly success is not the right standard. Saul was successful. He defeated the Amalekites, but he had a heart of disobedience. You know, it's kind of like, you ever told your kids to go clean their room? And, you know, half hour later, you go check up and you say, hey, did you clean your room? And you, you, they take you into the room and you look in the room and you think, Look how clean the room is. I have such a great child. The floor is completely clear. They obeyed me. Look at this work. It's so beautiful. You get down and you look. They even swept all the dust off the floor. You could even, you could, you, you could even eat food off the ground. It's so clean. And you're so proud of your child and you think they obeyed. Just like Saul came to Samuel and said, I've done everything. But what did Samuel have hidden? In his closet. Just like the parent. You go and you, well, let me see what you did in the closet. Oh, no, mom. <laughs> Don't go there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that later. And you go and you open the closet door and there's tons of skeletons in that closet. And they all fall down on top of your head. Because all the child did was he gathered all the stuff off the floor and shoved it into the closet just like Saul did. Oh, it, it's okay. Partial disobedience is disobedience. And God, <laughs> amen, that's good, right? Partial, diso- partial obedience is disobedience. That's what I'm supposed to say. But that's, that's what happens. God doesn't judge our actions more than he judges our hearts. The praise of man is not the right standard. Popularity is not the right standard. The aim of our life should be what? Should be to please God in everything that we do. The aim of our life should be to please God in everything that we do. 
And the genesis of that aim starts in our heart. The aim of our life should be to please God in everything that we do. And the genesis of that aim starts in our heart. Well, then you might ask me, well, Ben, that sounds good. And I want to have a heart for the Lord. And I want, I want to please God in everything that I do. But I feel my, my affections and my desires are mixed. And I feel a pull from the world. And I feel these desires. And how do I, how do I birth? How do I stir up a desire for the Lord? How do I stir up a desire for the Lord? How do I stir up my affections to be for him to where I can be useful for him? How do I do that? It's real simple. It's real easy. It's done like this. This is a statement that you say. For all you've given me, I will give you all that I am. For all that you've given me, I will give you all that I am. Proper perspective concerning all that God has done in us and for us will continually stir our affections for him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. Remember, while you were still in rebellion against God, he did what? He died for you. When you wanted nothing to do with him, he died for you. When you loved your sin more than you loved him, he died for you. When you were worshiping idols of, of, of money and possessions and sexual pleasure and sins of all kinds, he died for you. As far as the east is from the west, this is how far God has removed your transgressions from you if you are found in Christ. That's Psalms 103. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far God removes our transgressions from us when we're found in him. He didn't just die for us when we're sinners, but he pays the penalty of our sin and he removes our transgressions from us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. When you think, when you think about what God has done, when you think about who you were before Christ, it stirs your affections, it stirs your desires, and you surrender more of your heart and more of your heart. You open up this corner and that corner, the ones you've been holding back, and you say, Lord, you can have that. Come in, take control. Lord, forgive me. From our partial obedience. Lord, you can have all of my heart. Because this is what matters most is our heart. Listen to Psalm 3, 1 through 6. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You ever felt that way? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. Don't you love that right there? You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Have you ever had your head lift? Have you ever had your head down? The burdens and the weights of the world were on your shoulders and you could barely even lift your head. But you, O oh Lord, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why am I reading that? Remember. Think. Recall all the good that God has done. Ponder deeply the goodness of God in your life. And what will happen? Your love for him will grow. Your affections for him will deepen. And then what will happen? Your life will change. 
Proverbs 27. Your life will reflect your heart. Your life will change. You guys follow me? Man's evaluations go only skin deep. Who's going to be used by God? Who's going to be the type of person that God uses to move his kingdom forward in this earth? It's not going to be the one that the world looks at and says, surely it's them because they have all the strength. They have all the intellect. They can speak beautifully. They look the part. No, it's the Lord's evaluation that matters most. It's the Lord's evaluation of our heart that sets a person apart. Not our perspective. So don't look at people and think, but God can never use them. God can never do something with their life. Don't be so foolish. Don't be so foolish. Because man's evaluation is inaccurate. It's inaccurate. It's incomplete. It's incomplete. What do we see here, lastly? So that's how man evaluates. We see how the Lord evaluates, but what does the Lord do? Through the life of a person who has a sincere, true heart of affection and love for the Lord. Let's go back to the text. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he says, there remains yet the youngest. And have underlined here, I believe it's underlined. But. That word but's a big word that Jesse the father is saying there. He says, the youngest is not here, but it's a caveat, but it's a, it's a, it's a condition, but, but, uh, I can hear him, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. You don't want him to come. He's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Wow. So what do we see? We see here clearly, number three, that the Lord's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. The Lord's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. Man's evaluation, it's what? The Lord, the Lord evaluates what? A heart. And it doesn't matter how weak you look, how incompetent you look, not educated, don't have it all together. You have your weaknesses and your trials and your struggles. The, Lord, the Lord's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. David was the youngest. He was the runt of the litter. He was simply the keeper of the sheep and no one was looking to him for leadership. Even when we go into 1 Samuel 17, he goes walking around with his brothers. He's looking around. Nobody's looking at David saying, hey, you want to take care of that giant? In fact, whenever he did go to, to King Saul, it was like Saul's like, Wait a minute, you're a little guy. 16 years old, probably. Nobody's looking to David for leadership. God's glory shines the brightest through vessels like that. But he was exactly who God was looking for. Why? Because the Lord's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, skin-deep standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. You didn't have a great heritage and legacy in your life. Not many of you were like that. But God chose what? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in what? In your strength, in your wisdom, in your ability, in your appearance, in people's perceptions of you. Is that what, what, what we boast in? No. If we're going to boast, we boast in the Lord. Why? Because the glory of the Lord shines the brightest through weak vessels because it's unmistakable. How can God use that person? The glory shines the brightest. This is what God does. He specializes in using weak, frail, and despised people to get glory in the earth. Because that's all he has. If he's going to get it done, he's going to get it done through us. Because we're all weak. We're all weak. We're all, we're all frail. We're all despised as believers. The world doesn't want to hear our message. They despise our message. Even our Lord and Savior was not seen as anything special when he walked the earth. Look at Isaiah 53. Who has believed? This is through the prophet Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Eliab came in, he had form and majesty, and Samuel did what? This is the guy. When Jesus came, he had no form and majesty that we should look at him and say as Samuel said. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not what God does. He did it with his son. God uses weak people, weak vessels, incompetent vessels, vessels that, that look, that the world looks at and says nothing good can come from that person. Isn't that encouraging to you? Do you feel excited today? I know some of you are about to fall asleep. But that, if you get one thing here today, isn't that encouraging that God can use you? God can use you for his glory. Amen? If God can use me, he can use you. If God can use you, he can use me. That's what God does. Because it's not skin-deep evaluation. It's a heartfelt evaluation. It's about our heart. Moses was a stutterer and afraid to speak. What did God do? God used him to deliver an entire nation of people. He wouldn't even go. He said, God, I'm not going to go. If, if you were walking the earth today and you walk by a bush and it catches fire and you hear a voice booming from heaven, go to this town in this city and speak this. You think you'd go, right? Moses was so scared. Speak? You want me to speak? In spite of the burning bush, in spite of the heat of the flame, in spite of the fact that the bush was not even consumed, it was ever burning. He still said, I can't go unless you send somebody with me to speak for me. But God used him. And if you go back into the story of the Exodus, who was it that spoke? Moses spoke. He spoke. God used him. Elijah was intimidated, scared, and depressed. But God used him to defeat 450 prophets of Baal. Now, I got the story flipped here. He defeats 450 prophets of Baal, and then Jezebel comes talking to him, and what does he do? 
He runs and flees for his life. Oh, mighty man of valor, right? Calls down fire from heaven. God consumes the sacrifice. 450 prophets of Baal are destroyed. And the Jezebel says, oh, hey, hey buddy, I'm going to do the same thing to you that you did to my prophets. And he goes and runs and, and, and hides in a cave. And he says, oh, Lord, it would be better than I not live. He's depressed and suicidal. God used him in powerful ways, even somebody that could be scared and depressed. Why? Because God's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. Gideon was insecure and doubted God's word and plan. What did Gideon want? I want to fleece God. I'm going to to put it out and and it needs to be wet. And and then I'm going to put it out again and it needs to be dry. God, give me a sign. I don't know. Can it be? Can it be that I got to go out with 300 men? He doubted whether God would be with him. What did God say to Gideon when he went to him? Oh, mighty man of valor. And he looked at himself and said, who are you talking to? It can't be me. But what did God do? He led an army of 300 soldiers to defeat the enemy. Paul was formerly Saul, who made it his aim to persecute and kill Christians. But God saved him and used him as the premier apostle to plant churches and write two-thirds of the New Testament. Think of it. A murderer. He consented to the murder of Christians. He was a murderer. He gave the authority to have Christians persecuted and killed. God shines a light from heaven, speaks from heaven, knocks him off of his donkey, his donkey that was bringing him to persecute more Christians. He had authority to go and persecute, to round them all up. And God saved him, changed his name. God used that person. Why? Because the Lord's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. The disciples were all weak and cowardly when the pressure was applied. What happened whenever Jesus was arrested? What, what happened? They all scattered. Actually, one of the, one of the, one of the testimonies, one of the, one of the gospels say that there was a disciple that was on the fringe and he had his bed sheet with him. His bed sheet was on, right? And he's around when Jesus gets arrested. And when he gets arrested, he's so scared, he flees and leaves his bed sheet. And the text says he runs away naked. These are the disciples. The disciples were all weak and cowardly when the pressure was applied. But what did God do? God used them to turn the world upside down with the gospel. Amen? God uses weak people. Peter denied even knowing the Lord. You've heard the story. Three times before the cock crows, he denied even knowing the Lord. Cursed at the person the third time. What happened? But God used him to preach the first New Testament sermon in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people were saved. Why? Because the Lord's glory shines the brightest through weak vessels. It's not about who you are or who you're not. It's about who God is. It's not about who you are or who you're not. It's about who God is. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul asked for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God said no. You know, sometimes God doesn't answer you. God's answer to your prayer is no. Did you know that? A little sidebar here. Sometimes when we go before the Lord in prayer, all we want is yes. I mean, we all do, right? None of us want to know. It's a good desire. I want yes to every prayer request. You know, 
We, we say that God answers prayer. You know, sometimes he says, no. You need to remember that. It's so very important to have that biblical perspective. That's a biblical perspective. The Lord asked, the Paul, Paul asked the Lord three times, take this thorn in the flesh from me. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but it buffeted him. He wanted it gone. It was a sincere desire. The Lord said, no. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the, for, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God takes delight in using weak vessels. Ultimately, our life is about Christ. It's about his glory. It's not about our strengths or our weaknesses. It's not about who we are or who we're not. It's about Christ being glorified in and through our life. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 1. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Speaking of his imprisonment, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Amen? Man's evaluation only goes skin deep. The Lord evaluates the heart, and that's the person, the one who has a sincere, pure heart that desires to glorify Christ. That is the heart of the person that God is going to use to impact his kingdom. So God anointing David, when, you, when, you're, when we're at Jesse's house, God anointing David wasn't even about David. Do you guys get that as we're going through this? It wasn't even about David. It wasn't about him, and that's what we have to understand. God using us is not about us. When we say, God, use me, it's not about us. It's about who? It's about him. God anointing David as king was ultimately not about him. It was about the plan that God was going to unfold through his life. It was about the plan of redemption that, was, that God was going to bring through his life. And what did that plan look like? It looked like Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. What did the prophet say? The Messiah was going to come through the line of David. God anointed David to be king, not because it was about him, but because it was about Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verses 17 and 18 of Matthew 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Not about us. It's about Christ. You want to be used by God here today? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about your strengths. It's not about your weaknesses. It's not about your greatness or your power. It's not about whether you think you have what it takes. It's about Christ. And is your heart willing to say yes? You know, one of my greatest desires as a pastor here at Living Word 
is that I want to see a congregation full of people who have a desire to see the gospel shine the brightest in our world today, wherever we go. When I look out at you, I see evangelists. I see people that carry the light of the gospel. And God wants to use you. Don't ever think that you're not usable just because you don't have a speaking ability or you're not up here playing music on a stage. Where's your heart? That's what matters the most. First of all, are you right with the Lord here today? That's square one. You can't be used by God to further his kingdom unless you're in relationship with Christ. So are you right here today? Or maybe if you're here, you're a believer here today, is your heart in the right place? Are your motives pure? Do you have desires to be used by God? But you also have desires to be seen by man? Surrender that to the Lord and say, Lord, strip me of all of that. God, I want to be usable by you so that the name of Christ can be exalted. Amen? Amen. Lord, I thank you for your word and what it speaks to us. I thank you that your word is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it dissects, it reveals the real you, the real me, the real us on the inside, who we really are. Lord, I pray that we would stop evaluating people based upon what we see on the outside. Help us, Lord, forgive us for our favoritism. Forgive us for our pride. Lord, help us. Help us to see the way that you see. Give us your eyes. We can see the value of those around us. That everyone, anyone that names the name of Christ, no matter how great we think they are or how insignificant we think they are, can be used by you to point others to Christ. Lord, help us to see it. And may we be a body of believers that is unified together for that singular purpose of exalting Christ, making disciples, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. I'll see you next week.